You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to the 437th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich, and Tracy will be MIA again. She did get home last night from her trip, but is pretty tired, and she has to go back to work tomorrow. So I thought it might be a good idea to just let her rest all day today and not worry about doing the podcast So, yeah, uh, but I'll do the best I can here by myself to get us a little farther along with the story of what happened there at Knoxville, Tennessee in November 1863 with James Longstreet and Ambrose Burnside. As you guys will recall, in the last episode, the Confederates crossed the Tennessee River some 40 miles southwest of Knoxville on November 14th, but then Longstreet failed to come to grips with the Yankees at Lenore's station the next day and also missed a chance to trap them at Campbell's station on the 16th. Well, after winning the race to Campbell's station, the Federals' successful stand there not only prevented the rebels from cutting them off from Knoxville, but it also gave the Yankees valuable time to work on Knoxville's defenses. Burnside had given that important task to his command's chief engineer, Captain Orlando Poe. Poe, a 31-year-old West Point graduate, recalled, quote, I was instructed to select, around Knoxville, lines of defense and have everything prepared to put the troops into position as they should arrive. What Poe had to work with was a series of largely unfinished trenches, battery sites, and earthworks that stretched around Knoxville. Uh, The town itself sat on a high, a half-mile-wide plateau, 150 feet above the Tennessee River, which bordered Knoxville to the south. Uh, Two streams, both of which ran from north to south and emptied into the Tennessee, cut through the plateau. Uh, First Creek separated the main portion of Knoxville from the east side of town, 
About a thousand yards farther west, Second Creek ran along the western edge of the plateau. A third stream, creatively called Third Creek, flowed about a mile west of Second Creek. After completing their 15-mile retreat from Campbell Station, when the weary federal troops reached Knoxville on the morning of November 17th, Poe directed them to their positions. First to arrive were the men of Edward Ferraro's division of the 9th Corps, who were put into the defenses west of town, from the river up around to 2nd Creek. John Hartrant's 9th Corps Division manned the line between 2nd and 1st Creeks, while soldiers from the 23rd Corps filled the remaining portion of the line east of 1st Creek and assisted Union cavalry troopers in maintaining positions on the south side of the river. The key to the Federal defenses on the west side of Knoxville the direction from which the Confederates were approaching, was Fort Loudon. Uh, named by the rebels who had begun its construction when they held Knoxville, Fort Loudon was still unfinished on November 17th. It was nevertheless a formidable position. Built atop a nearly 200-foot hill, the fort was, in the words of Captain Poe, Quote, a bastioned earthwork built upon an irregular quadrilateral, the sides of which are, respectively, 125 yards southern front, 95 yards western front, 125 yards northern front, and 85 yards eastern front. Well, when the federal troops reached Knoxville, Poe said that Loudon's, quote, southern front was about half done. The western front was finished, except cutting the embrasures, and the northern front was nearly finished. The fort was surrounded by a ditch about 12 feet wide and as much as 8 feet deep. So coupled with the height of the parapet, anyone looking to scale the exterior wall of the fort faced a climb of as much as 20 feet. A picked to garrison Fort Loudon were the men of the 79th New York Infantry, known as the Highlanders, because most of them were of Scottish descent. Lieutenant Samuel Benjamin of the 2nd U.S. Artillery Regiment, whose guns defended the fort, had personally requested the Highlanders. You see, Benjamin knew the regiment well, having served alongside the New Yorkers for much of the war. In fact, some of them had helped work his guns at the Battle of South Mountain and also at Antietam. Here at Fort Loudon, Benjamin had 10 guns, four 20-pounder Parrots, four 12-pounder Napoleons, and two 3-inch rifles. Uh, Before they were directed to Fort Loudon shortly after sunrise, the men of the 79th New York spent several hours in town. Corporal William Todd recorded, Even at so early an hour, the streets were filled with citizens, 
all wearing an anxious and rather doleful appearance. They thought no doubt that the rebels were coming right in to take possession of the place, and many of the people who had professed Union sentiments while our army was in the town began to look rather blue. Their confidence, however, was somewhat restored when they saw us arriving in such good order and taking our positions outside the town, and also by the self-satisfied air with which we spoke of the result that might be expected should the enemy attack us. After reaching their respective positions in and around Knoxville during the morning of the 17th, Burnside's 12,000 weary men got little time to catch up on much-needed rest before being put to work. Major Byron Cutchen of the 36th Massachusetts arrived at Knoxville just before daybreak and was told he and his men could lie down for an hour. Cutchen recalled, quote, I tied my horse to a post, stripped a board from a fence for a bed, and in two minutes was in a heavy sleep and slept until awakened perhaps an hour and a half later. I found that the troops were being conducted to a position by officers of the engineers, where lines of breastworks had been marked out. In the course of the morning, several hundred civilians were brought out and put to work with pick and shovel, digging entrenchments. All soldiers who could be furnished with any kind of tools were also put to work. It was almost marvelous to see how fast the entrenchments and batteries grew. And for the next several days, the Federal soldiers, with assistance from many of Knoxville's white and black residents, worked around the clock to improve the town's defenses. At Fort Loudon, the intensive labor produced impressive results. Embrasures for the guns were cut in the walls. Cotton bales wrapped in rawhide were placed atop the parapet to offer the defenders greater protection from enemy bullets. And outside the fort, where numerous trees had been cut down to clear field, fields of fire, telegraph wire was strung between the stumps, to form shin-high entanglements meant to slow down the charge of attacking enemy troops. However, the enemy attack for which the Federals were so feverishly preparing was slow in coming. Having failed to trap the Yankees at Campbell's Station, Longstreet resumed the Confederate advance at sunrise the next day, the 17th. Around half-past nine that morning, McClaw's men came into contact with the Federal rear guard. Several regiments of Union cavalry and mounted infantry commanded by Brigadier General William Sanders. The 30-year-old Sanders was born in Kentucky and raised in Mississippi. In fact, he was a cousin to Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Uh, Sanders was a West Point graduate and an officer in the old army who, when war came, remained loyal to the Union. Here, on November 17th, Sanders, with about 600 men, conducted a series of skillful delaying actions between Campbell's Station and Knoxville, slowing down the rebel advance. 
Finally, Sanders withdrew to a spot some 800 yards west of Third Creek, along the Kingston Road. It was an excellent defensive position, where high ground and the river formed a natural choke point where a small force could easily hold off a larger one, and Sanders' men presented a significant obstacle to the Confederate advance. For the remainder of the day, the dismounted Yankees stood fast at this spot, in the process buying precious time for Burnside to strengthen the defenses of Knoxville. Well, that night, the federal commander met with Poe and Sanders to discuss the situation. According to Orlando Poe, when Ambrose Burnside asked him how much longer he would need to work on the town's defenses, Poe's answer was until noon the next day. Poe recalled that Burnside then turned to Sanders and asked if he could maintain his blocking position outside of town until that time, and William Sanders said he would do it. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. In fact, William Sanders would hold off the Confederate infantry well past noon on November 18th. But around 2.30 that afternoon, the rebels finally broke through, and Sanders, while trying to rally his men, was shot in the left side. He died the next day. However, the time he had bought with his defensive stand was invaluable. Orlando Poe would write, quote, Every spadeful of earth turned while Sanders was fighting, aided in making our position secure, and he had determined to sacrifice himself, if necessary, for the safety of the rest of the army. The men at work on Fort Loudoun, including Major Cutchin, had a clear view of Sanders' defensive stand there west of town, and Cutchin said, quote, It was a sorrowful sight to see our brave fellows forced back. In honor of their fallen comrade, the Federals renamed Fort Loudoun Fort Sanders. On the afternoon of November 18th, the Federals in the fort who saw the Confederates finally break through Sanders' thin line were certain the rebels would keep coming, 
Corporal Todd of the 79th New York said, quote, General Burnside was looking over the parapet of the fort, watching the engagement, and when he saw Sanders driven back, he went from point to point along the west front of the fort, encouraging the men, advising us to keep cool, fire low, and be sure and hit something every time. But the Confederates didn't keep coming because Longstreet didn't believe his force was strong enough to risk an all-out assault on the Yankee works. He would say, quote, We went to work, therefore, to make our way forward by gradual and less hazardous measures, at the same time making examinations of the enemy's entire positions. Well, Longstreet placed the brigades of McClaw's division west of town, stretching northward from the river to a point beyond the northwest bastion of Fort Sanders. Jenkins' division continued the Confederate line eastward. As McClaw's and Jenkins' men began to dig in, Wheeler's cavalry, recalled from their foray on the south side of the river, now patrolled the ground to Jenkins' left, east of First Creek. And so, instead of immediately attacking, Longstreet instead proceeded to position his troops around the Union lines north of the Tennessee River, in effect laying siege to Knoxville. Clearly, the first two weeks of his campaign to eject Burnside from Knoxville and reclaim East Tennessee for the Confederacy had not gone well for James Longstreet. Bragg had emphasized that, quote, the success of the plan depends on rapid movements and sudden blows, end quote. But there had been no rapid movements thanks to transportation challenges and muddy roads, and there had been no sudden blows struck. Though Longstreet did now have Burnside virtually bottled up in Knoxville, his own logistical concerns and Bragg's precarious situation back at Chattanooga meant Old Pete couldn't afford to waste time on a lengthy siege. Even so, he now proceeded to display a surprising lack of urgency over the next ten days. Longstreet and his lieutenants spent two days, November 19th and 20th, just studying the federal lines, a task that wasn't made any easier since they didn't have any good maps of Knoxville or the surrounding countryside. But by the 21st, Longstreet's survey had convinced him of one thing, that he needed more men. He had about 12,000 infantry in McClaws and Jenkins' divisions and around 5,000 horsemen in Wheeler's command, but, although Burnside only had about 12,000 men in Knoxville, Longstreet mistakenly pegged enemy troop strength at 20,000 and so he wired Bragg that he needed reinforcements, saying, quote, 
I think that my force is hardly strong enough to warrant my taking his works by assault. And later that same day, in another message, old Pete made clear what he thought he needed, asking of Bragg, quote, Can't you spare me another division? It will shorten the work here very much. But with Ulysses S. Grant clearly almost ready to launch the long-awaited federal attack at Chattanooga, Braxton Bragg, who was by this point heavily outnumbered by Grant, had no troops to spare to send to Longstreet. That meant old Pete was going to have to make do at Knoxville with what he had. And I think that's where I'm going to start to wrap up this show. Hopefully it's enough to tide you over until next time when we'll have Tracy back with us once again. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Burnside by William Marvel. And this is actually a re-recommendation, but it seems like a good time to trot it back out. And I vaguely recall mentioning last time we recommended this, that out of the hundreds and hundreds of books in our Civil War library, this biography, at least the edition we have, well, it has hands down the most hideous cover of any of those hundreds and hundreds of books. And I I feel compelled to mention that once again, because it really is, well, awful. In any case, you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And at the website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon, just like Tom S. and T.O. did this past week. Uh, There at the website, you can also make a one-time donation, if you wish, just like Bill K. did this past week. So, thanks, guys. Uh, We appreciate your support of the podcast. And this week here in the States, we have Thanksgiving coming up, and we hope all of you have a fantastic holiday with family and or friends. And if you aren't here in the States, we we hope you still have many people and things in your life for which you're thankful. We're thankful for all of you. Uh, Thanks for listening to this episode. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.